Hello, I'm Daniel Kleinman, and this is my 80s opera. Welcome to Atisography and an interview with director Daniel Kleinman. Maybe not as recognisable a name as some other music video directors of the 80s, but a hell of a career. Hell of a career from the 80s onwards, as you'll discover. Uh, some audio commentaries to enjoy in this episode, four of them. So if you're able to sync up with um, Not Me Cylinder, uh, the links are in the episode description. Please do or enjoy as an interview and uh, I will see you on the other side. This is the start of the interview. A couple of things before we get into the 80s. Obviously, people may not know, but the Bond credit thing. You've been involved with doing the the opening credits to the James Bond film since GoldenEye, with a couple of exceptions. Um, yeah, well, including, well, one including, exception. Oh, is it one exception? Which is the one you didn't do? One's from Solace, I didn't do it. Okay. Was that because you were otherwise occupied or? No, it was the, the director of that particular film wanted his own people to do it. And um, actually I know them and they did a good job really. Okay. All right. You did No Time To Die as well. Obviously it was delayed quite a while because of the pandemic. Yeah. When the film was previously meant to be released, I assume you already had the credit sequence locked down. Uh, yeah. Very originally, the, the, the film was meant to come out. It usually comes out in the autumn and uh, then it got pushed back to uh, April because they had a lot of problems with... Um, uh, they swapped directors uh, and there was some injury on the set, various things they ran into problems with. So I had a bit of extra time and I, it was finished in time for a release in April two years ago. So then it, then it just sat on the shelf. That was my question. Did you tinker in it in the meantime? Because you had all this extra time. Did you ever go back to it and change anything? No, no, it was all locked. The film right. was locked. You can't go back and, and tell. I mean, I would have loved to have an extra couple of weeks on it, but uh, which was the irony. You know, everyone was jamming to get the film finished. Not not only me, but also the editors in the main film and the people doing the special effects for the main film. So yeah, there was a lot of stress right towards the end because it was a very tight uh schedule for the post and then it all got done finished locked and then and then the, everyone could have had another two years to work on that's, it. that's so ironic isn't it, yeah, they, it rushed is, to, yeah. they rushed to wait for two and a half years exactly uh, my favorite bond uh, credit sequence of all time i would say is casino royale oh, i think you. that's an absolute masterpiece the way you use all the uh card imagery and the, the casino imagery oh thanks was that particularly hard to do? Because that was obviously that was Daniel Craig's first. You know that shot of him walking towards the camera at the end. Was that all part of the design to like just yeah. set a new Bond? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was you know my my way of kind of introducing him to uh, to do it. Um, I mean, the director of that film, Martin Campbell, is a very good director, very good action director. But he really, you know, he doesn't. He's one of the directors who just doesn't get involved in the title sequence particularly. Right. The only thing he said was he didn't think it was appropriate to have women in it, which I agreed with, you know, but, but mostly because of this, the storyline of the film and that the film itself was, you know, before Bond becomes Bond and before he's been cheated on by his girlfriend and uh, betrayed in his mind. And so he's not quite the sort of womanizer yet. <laughs> that uh, you, yeah. you you know so it kind of didn't feel right to have 
the women in the in the title sequence because the title sequence in, that, in, in Casino Royale was all about him the narrative of it was about him getting his double O status so before the titles he's not a double O agent and after the titles he is a double O agent that's what's so clever about the cards and then you get the two shots and there's a 007 it's just so cleverly done well thanks I should, I should get off James Bond because obviously we've got lots to cover in a short space of time. yeah sure I think there is a James Bond podcast you should definitely go on there and talk about every credit sequence you've done because that would be fascinating I'd love to listen oh, to right. that um, and the other thing pre-1980 is you're in a band called Bazooka Joe, is that correct? That's right, yeah. And is it is it true that you were supported by the Sex Pistols in their first ever gig? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. the, <laughs> so that's a claim to fame. Forget about your career, just that alone. What a cool thing to say. Well, yeah, I mean, Bazooka Joe was a, you know, it was a good band, but it was way before punk. You know, it was a kind of school band, art school band, all mates playing in it. Um, you know, quite a lot of people in that band went on to have careers in other more famous bands. But uh, uh, it, it was kind of pub rock. It was quite aggressive pub rock, which I think was probably the mood at the time, which is what punk came out of, I suppose. Yeah, they, they supported us at uh, St. Martin's Art School uh, when we did a gig there. And yeah, they weren't particularly good <laughs> that, that I night. I in 1975, what were they? Were they pub rock, I take it? They wouldn't have been punk in 75. No, well, they was, they, I think they were doing, they did mostly cover versions right. and they didn't play for that long either, but it was their first ever gig. And, uh, you know, I still, I still know a couple of them quite reasonably well. You know, all those bands of that era, Clash and whatnot, they're still all mates and everything. Did you ever work with them later on in the video directing capacity and say, I guess do you remember me? No, but oh. uh, no, I didn't. But Adam of Adam and the Ants was the bass player in my band, in, in, oh, okay. in our band. He was in Bazooka Joe. So after that, he went on to, you know, form the Ants. And uh, and I did do a, quite a few videos for him. 1980. Thank you. Thank you for the perfect segue into 1980. Thank you. I couldn't <laughs> that better myself. Brilliant. Um, so your first involvement in music videos was Ant Music, where you were the art director, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say it was my first involvement because, you know, the way I got into into doing uh, music videos was one of my close friends, uh, Steve Barron, had started doing filming some groups um, and filming them live right at the kind of early days of, of, of music videos. and. I used to kind of help him come up with concepts and do storyboards and things like that. He, he was doing ad music, he directed it, and because Adam was my friend and I, I think he kind of got the gig partly because Adam was my mate, he got me to sort of move out of doing storyboards and move me up a up a notch to uh, art direction so uh, that's how I got into doing the yeah the art direction for Ant Music. Uh, this is part of your art direction gig was like your job to like, design the big massive three pin plug? Yeah yeah and to do you know to sort of paint the sides of the um, there's a jukebox and there's various other bits I mean it was kind of you know it was reasonably ba basic but um you know it was the start of music videos there wasn't an enormous amount of money there you know a lot of the people in the crowd were mates and yeah there was the big thing with the plug being un unplugged and uh, it was but it was it was fun and you know adam is a, just such a char charismatic performer he's um i think a lot of people don't remember that you know before Ant Music before he was kind of famous and signed up and releasing records he was gigging for many years before that 
uh, Adam and the Ants in those early days were very, very hardcore. I mean, really tough. But then, it, then there was Ant Music was kind of the point where it, he tipped into being kind of more popularist. And oddly, another thing I did with Adam was I designed his logo, which was, it's like an ant wearing a headdress, wearing an Indian headdress. He asked me to do a logo for him, so I drew that logo in my, I had a little studio in Soho, and I sort of sat there and drew it, and I think I, I gave it to him and his manager made me sign a, a, a contract for a pound to give him the rights oh, to use no. it. And, uh, no and royalties then, then. And no no royalties and then the next day uh, the next week it was like everywhere it was on oh. t-shirts it was on scarves it, 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 i saw some guy in a pub who had it tattooed on his arm i couldn't believe it you know it was amazing and that was that was the tip over where adam just became you know massive massive artist at, at the time and uh, he still uses the logo actually yeah. oh, so that was a pound well spent wasn't it eh? <laughs> yeah no i'm very happy to do it for a pound i was so happy it Use. I think that's really cool. Yeah. Um, you also got your first, I think, only a- um, acting credit as the Amazed Man. You're credited in IMDb for that video. Oh, am I? Yeah. I Amazed Man. Amazed Man. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did do a, a few cameos in a few of his videos, actually. Uh, uh, it, uh, the best uh, cameo I, I ever did, actually, was uh, Steve Barron did another video for Shaking Stevens called uh, Green Door, and that was shot in my flat. And the reason it was shot in my flat, which was a basement flat, is I had a green door. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I think I just, I, you know, there was one bit where I stick my hand around the green door or something. But so the answer to what's behind the green door is I'm behind the green door. Right. So IMDb incorrect. You show two acting credits at least then. <laughs> yeah. I had that green door thing. I loved a bit of shaky when I was a kid. I yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was good. 1981. 1982. So in that period then between the art direction of Ant Music and your first directing credit in 83, so what happened in that two-year period in between? Were you just helping out on other videos? Yeah, yeah, I was doing storybook. I mean, basically, I was an illustrator. I went to art school and uh, I was playing in bands with my mates and illustrating and painting. You know, I always thought I was going to end up being a painter, but uh, I got uh, my illustration career was you know mostly doing book covers and magazine articles and record covers and that sort of thing which uh, was great but it didn't pay very well so to um, kind of supplement my my income I do storyboards for various uh, uh, directors like Julian Temple and you know people who were just starting doing music videos then 1983 and really what happened was that uh, my, I, I kind of did quite a few with Steve Barron, and he did. He he reinterpreted them in his way, which was brilliant. But I, it wasn't quite how I would have done it. And his sister was his producer, Siobhan Barron, and I, you know, I told her, I said, look, I, I I would have done that differently. And she said, well, you should have a go at doing it. And so she kind of got me my first directing gig, and I've I've basically jumped in right at the top I didn't really I didn't really have any film training whatsoever uh, so it was a bit of a you know into the frying pan type thing but uh, you know the first luckily the first thing I did uh, which was uh, a, a video for Heaven 17. Wow I was going to say which is your first one we'll get to that in a second just one yeah. more quick question so which of okay. all of the things you storyboarded in that two-year period which was the idea you had that you most regret not being realized in the video? Uh, is the one that springs to mind. I think, yeah, they, I finally used that bit. 
I don't, I don't think it was so much that the, the bits weren't used. It's just I would have filmed it in a different way. And I can't remember exactly. I mean, I think the, the, the storyboard that I've been trying to find for years and years, was, which I don't know where it is, it's in a loft somewhere, was uh, I did the storyboard for Billie Jean. For, oh, uh, man. Really? Uh, yeah, which Steve Barron was Steve Barron, wasn't it? Yes. Oh, yeah, wow. and um, I've got a feeling if I found that, I could, I could flog it. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you probably could. I might get more than more than a pound on eBay. Yeah, I might get more than a pound for that. Yeah. So, so for that in that example, so were you given the idea by Steve to this is what we want done, and you realise it in storyboard form, or was it a mixture of like? It was a collaboration at those times. I mean, I think very early on, Steve, who came, who didn't go to art school, came up through working in Samuelson's camera hire. Uh, His parents were in the film business, but he sort of borrowed cameras at the weekend, borrowed in inverted commas. The weekend from Samuelson's. When music videos stopped, it were not just performance. When they started to be a bit more conceptual, he needed a little bit of help from me at the beginning because I was art, arty in art school and come up with concepts. But pretty soon he was coming up with his own concepts and didn't didn't need me at all. But there was probably through that early eighties period, we kind of collaborated on the ideas. So he'd have an overall idea overview idea and I'd chuck in ideas and then we'd work it through go for a curry and uh you know discuss it and that would be sometimes depending on the budget on the on the video sometimes my payment was the curry <laughs> so the squares lighting up in the pretty team video was that steve's idea or was that your idea oh that that was certainly steve i'm sure uh, i think the idea was that everything lit up i mean i think some of the more crap ideas in it where <laughs> He's walking along and a cat turns into a sort of tiger or something. I can't remember exactly. I haven't watched it for years, but I think that I'll, I'll put my hand up for the crap ideas. I mean, <laughs> the good ones were all Steve's. That's very generous of you. I can't believe that Crushed by the Wheels of Industry was your first video you directed. That is an incredibly complex video. It always seems a complex video. There's so much in that. Like the best of your videos have so much going on. Yeah. It's your first video. Yeah. So just having a band in the studio perform their song to get used to like filming and things like you, you went straight for it the first one. Yeah. Great yeah. Video. It was. And I think the reason the reason that it, it, it kind of was different was because because I was an illustrator and I, I kind of thought of the pictures uh, as being, or the film as being a sort of series of illustrations, a, a series of moving stills almost. And you know, I was very aware of doing it as a graphic film rather than just normal film. I think that's because what I felt happiest doing. And also luckily it was the beginning, very nascent time of, of video special effects. So you could go into an online suite and you know, have these sort of very basic tools where you could move a picture around or shrink it down or those sort of things, which was great for me because it meant I could make it into a kind of collage and move things about. I mean, it, you know, it's it, you, one looks back on it now and it's very clunky and very, you know, of its time. But, but in 83, I, that was, it seemed groundbreaking. 80, 83, it was, it, you know, people were going, wow, I've not seen anything yeah. like that before. Yeah, so, definitely. you know, that was, that was a good one to start. And that, yeah, because if it hadn't have gone down well, I'd probably still be illustrating. <laughs> yeah, but it did go down well, so um, that was that was good, lucky. And then after that, I I did I probably did a couple of other videos, and then did Hyperactive with Thomas Dolby, which that was 
you know, I really got into doing all the sort of weird video effects and special effects on on that. You know, he, I think Tom, you know, Tom had a few of the ideas, but I think it was a little bit of a difficult time because he, I think he was a bit irritated that I directed it and he hadn't. Oh, okay, I doubt. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, you know, we we resolved it after a, after a while, and he's a very clever bloke. He's still writing and doing stuff. So, so as a general point, and and referring to your first video, so. Are you pitching it to the record company and all the artists? Oh, it's really the artist, really. And well, I'll tell you the truth of it, and you can use this or you can edit it out as you like. But you know, I wanted to do to to direct something, and I had actually done storyboards for a couple of Heaven Seventeen videos before, which uh, other directors had done. So they knew me as a storyboard artist and the person that was. Uh, uh, you know, had come up with some of the ideas for their previous work. And Siobhan Barron, Steve's sister, who was the producer and was my old friend, um, said, uh, you know, she thought I should be directing. And she said, well, I'll tell you what, I really fancy the singer of Heaven 17. I'll, I'll tell him I'll sleep with him if he lets you direct the video. So, uh, so I got to direct the video. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a sacrifice on her part then if she's fancy. No, no, no. I think he 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 and she were both quite happy about the arrangement. Okay, so, right. <laughs> I remember. But it was it was it was them really. I don't think record companies at the time had much idea about music videos. You know, they didn't as long as you were a bona fide member of the union or allowed to work by the union, then the record companies would be fine. They, you know, it was really down to the artists at that time. And it was a closed shop um, in those days. So you, I had to get dispensation from the from the, the union to to direct. And once I directed, then I was fully in the union and that was it. So would you be given a budget at this point or would you just you'd make the video and submit it in this? Oh, no, there would have been a budget. It wouldn't have been great a great budget but yes there was a there was a budget and i did actually shoot it on video which was quite unusual at the time as well i mean a lot of people uh, video then was used for you know in tv for you know tv news and that sort of thing it wasn't really used in music videos i think that gave it a different look as well and um also uh it meant that going directly to online was uh, a lot easier i did it all like believe at moving picture company which had a little studio at the back in soho and um edited with an editor called david yardley who's again still editing and very creative guy he really helped me through it actually his his knowledge of editing and and using those machines and whatever so how long did that video take from start to finish oh blimey i can't remember but it wouldn't have been that long you know a month less probably a couple of weeks Okay. Also in 83, you did uh, Howard Jones, What is Love? Big favourite of mine in the 80s, Howard Jones. Me and my brother were big fans. Yeah. Uh, do you want to actually play the um, video? Audio commentary. Howard Jones, What is Love? Ah. Three, two, one, play. Okay. Well, yeah, the Howard Jones video starts with this pan across Paris onto a... Uh, a lady at the window and she's looking down at Howard. And I think, um, you know, it was only the second or third video that I'd ever directed. And up to then I'd done stuff on um, video. And this was the first, one of the first things I shot on film because I wanted it to look kind of romantic and filmic. <laughs> so uh, it was probably shot on 16 millimeter film. Um, and it's very simple. It was just meant to be different aspects of people 
um, you know, in love or what love does. And there's a point here where uh, a, a priest sort of runs through the screen, uh, through the shot. And I was trying just to find iconic French imagery, you know, a little bit less uh, uh, obvious than a, hitting someone on the head with a baguette, you know, but that, <laughs> the, uh, the priest was actually the, the, the assistant director dressed up running through. And then I, I, I kind of, what I, wanted to do was make Howard be a kind of metaphor for love and action. So he he does simple actions that are then mirrored by the world around him. I mean, look, it's so basic and so simple and very 80s, but uh, it was just kind of a sweet song and trying to make it look kind of romantic, even though Howard looks a bit odd in that outfit with <laughs> spiky hair and the and the beret on backwards but uh, that was that was the era then he opens his hand and a balloon goes and it's kind of like he's forcing things to happen in the real world uh, and then these other balloons go how it is basically god yeah he's that a kind of that, love yeah. god he's a love god <laughs> and then he yeah, and then there's this amazing Tongli sculpture, which I think is outside the Pompidou Centre. I love Tongli. He's an amazing kinetic sculpt, sculptor. And so I wanted to include that just because it's so bizarre. Um, and then these two French actors, old men kind of being angry with each other, and then they make up and they're, they love each other again. I had They didn't speak English. I didn't speak French. They had no idea what was going on. And there's this little scene of a man who's sort of been stood up for, um, I think it reprieves a bit later on, actually. Uh, Howard looking sort of cool. It was, it was shot rather nicely, actually. Um, a very rather slow pace. And then he's found all these sort of various French locations to make it look good. I mean, he... You know, he, he, the thing is, I wanted to get him to do something other than sing, but he's not an actor by his own, um, you know, he'd, he'd say it himself. So they're very basic little things where these, I think this is this bloke again who, who then gets angry. Uh, I don't I, I, maybe I, I'd been chucked by a girlfriend at the time because most of these love things are all a bit angry. Yeah, they're not positive expressions of love, are they? No, they're a little bit... <laughs> So what the answer to what is love is is not it, much. It, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there he goes, and then he wipes his face, and the and the and the thing fades to black. So look, I mean, pretty pretty basic. But Howard was a good a good performer, and he's a bit of a marmite singer. You know, people either love him or hate him. But for me, the music in all the music videos was entirely secondary to me getting to direct and getting to kind of learn the craft and have ideas and did it make a difference if you if you like the song would it no. make it easier to make the video it wouldn't make a difference either way it made no no difference to me whatsoever no it was all yeah. about the concept and the idea i mean you know really i'm not a great fan of 80s music per se you know i'm uh, so i can't really think that there are many of the songs that i actually particularly liked or would listen to just through choice, but right. that's, you know, I think um, they're they're probably better in retrospect than did, did they it, were at the time. Did, you didn't care if they were good songs or not, but did it care like if they were effective? The videos you made in terms of were yeah, you, yeah. would you were you, would you know? Obviously, this was a massive hit. 
in the UK and in Europe. Were you monitoring that when it was released? See, how was it doing? To see, or would it be one of the next things that didn't really matter? No, no, I'd, I'd move on to the next thing. But if, if, if it was a hit, then it was definitely a, a, a positive. It, it was good. I would be pleased if it was a hit. But quite often, I also, I was, you know, at the time, because I was not on the A list of directors, probably I'd, I was just getting started. I would be doing maybe the second song off an album or third song off an album. So quite often the song, the, the, the tracks I did weren't big hits. But yeah, I'd, if, if the song was an interesting song that had interesting music or interesting lyrics or it was an interesting story, that, you know, I'd, I, I would prefer that. But it didn't really make any difference. But I was definitely doing my best to try and put the artists over in in the best way that I could. But some of the acts I did videos for were pretty atrocious. <laughs> songs were pretty appalling. Well, I okay, I, I would have asked that in the quick fire round, but what's the worst song you had to do a video for? Oh, oh well, I'll have to. Have to have <laughs> what springs to that. mind when come, you think of worst songs? Come back to that. I'll, 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 I'll ponder it. But, okay, uh, have a ponder. Quite right. a lot to choose from. 1984. Moving into 84, obviously you did a bunch more with Howard Jones, uh, Pull in the Shell, Hide and Seek, and Like to Get to Know You. Is, is your version of Like to Get to Know You well the UK one? Within more uh, London, or is it the black and white one? No, so it was a UK one where it, it, it kind of wasn't very successful. You know, again, I think I was... I was experimenting a lot at the time, trying things, you know, trying things I hadn't done before. And I would try not to repeat myself and to do, you know, not have a, a particular style because I was, I hadn't gone to film school and I was, you know, a bit cheekily using all these bands money to teach myself how to how to do it and the way to do that was to keep trying new things and some things worked some things didn't i think that particular like to get to know you well kind of didn't quite work I, I was hoping the public would give kind of spontaneous reactions to howard just popping out of nowhere and i was going to get all these people a bit like candid camera or something but uh, it didn't really work so so it ended up being not the best best video and i think he, he then he went on and reshot it in yeah, as you say in Paris uh, you doing um, videos for him was that on his request of the record company saying yeah we like what we do with what is love keep going I think it was a bit of both but uh, we were quite good friends Howard I haven't seen him for years so we, we, have, we do swap emails every now and again but I haven't seen him for a long time but he he uh, was a very nice chap and you know very very nice guy and he no he would, he would specifically ask for me to do it that's for sure yeah so 84 was a big year because you did have some big hits there. So I just called to say I love you. Stevie Wonder was a massive number one around the world. Yeah, although on that one, um, I only shot the live footage. I seem to remember the video is kind of live footage with some kind of special effects, kind of big piece of toast or something floating about. <laughs> which that, that wasn't me. <laughs> I still remember as a kid watching it, the original was just a performance of him. And then there, there was then later one with video effects. Yeah. I, I mean, there was remember a terrible, it. terrible problem uh, with it. You know, when I shot the, the performance, it was at a, um, a big live concert. The reason it was sort of problematic was that he, they, his, his people flew in a, a hairdresser from America to give him cornrows. And she took so long to do it that 
our time of filming close-ups, which was during the day or during the afternoon before the crowd was let in, uh, just didn't, never appeared. She just went on and on doing his hair. And unfortunately, she did it so tightly that he was in excruciating pain. So we had to get a doctor to come and inject his head with painkiller. God. Really <laughs> terrible. <laughs> but I eventually did Get, get hold I held this crowd of thousands of people outside this venue and said look just even for the single the, there were a couple of singles like I called saying uh, uh, there's something else about I said just let me film him on stage with some close-up cameras because you don't want close-up cameras in the wide shots with the audience and the audience don't want to see cameras running about on the stage so uh, I shot him close up this lady had still only done three quarters of his head with cornrows so a quarter of his head is sort of normal hairdo and the rest is these cornrow things and uh then he they went he went off uh, and she she finished doing his hair which was not good for continuity but even worse she shaved him so in the close-ups he's got sort of three quarters of a head of cornrows and a beard and in the wide shots he's got total cornrow head and no beard so that the live film itself was tricky to edit to make it to make it work even though the footage was was good it's well shot and he's a good performer but you know probably they felt they needed to add a few extra elements in there to make it be uh, you know a bit more something or cover up the bits where you know it just really didn't look good was this, he didn't look good anyway was this woman actually a hairdresser or was she like somebody escaped from jail or something <laughs> she sounds like somebody psychotic is like shaving head I know it, it was an absolute nightmare. The whole thing was a nightmare. But no, she was like some famous hairdresser from America. I mean, we, and we were we, we were in somewhere like Finland, I think. So you know why they decided that he had to have his hair done by a lady from America? It was ridiculous, yeah. <laughs> okay, I retract my statement about her being somebody escaped from jail. Then, if she's well known, I'll take that back. Well, I don't. I, I, I can't even know who she. I can't remember her name or who she. Was. But please don't remember. Please don't remember her name. Okay. So <laughs> That was a big hit, but unfortunately it wasn't a great video. So, uh, and I didn't do all of it, so that didn't help much, but. Um, it still looks good on the resume though, doesn't it? That yeah, I guess, like, yeah. yeah. He was a nice man, very nice man. You know, it's nice to have shaken his hand, you know. Yeah. Great performer. Dance All Days was a Wang yes. Chung, that was quite a big hit. But um, that, that was, was the big. second version, wasn't it? Because the first one was by Derek Jarman of all people. Yeah. Uh, was it on the band's request or the record company's request that their second video get made? I really don't know, but obviously they weren't happy with the video that Derek Jarman did. And it, you know, he's a great talent, but it wasn't a very good video. So I remade it. But weirdly, it's kind of sort of easier to to find the one that he did than it, than it is. That's the thing, because there is one version like on YouTube that's really poor quality. You think, yeah. surely, that, do you have good copies of the videos you've made? I, I, I might have some, you know, I've probably got some, some, some old three quarter inch video cassettes of old stuff somewhere. So would you be able to upload it? So we've got a good quality version of actually. I work. might, if I could find it and I could find a three quarter inch machine to play the tape. Okay. I might, I might be a tricky to, bit, I'll, yeah. I'll get round to it at some time. But actually, you know, that, 
that video. I was, I was, I was quite pleased with that video. It was one of the better ones uh, I did, and it was a good, it was a good song, and it was a hit in America, which was good. So that sort of helped me move over to to work in America. And it's the bit when the glitter ball comes down and smashes, and that woman dances the glitter ball, and it's, it's kind yeah. of there's something kind of haunting about that image. Yeah, it was. I kind of wanted it, the whole thing, to be slightly surreal and like a, a fantasy memory of, of dancehall days. And so, uh, you know, some of the things you maybe aren't quite obvious, but uh, all the, the, the dancers are actually all um, children. I mean, and because they, they dress up like adults and put on makeup like adults, they ended up looking like adults. But, you know, I tried to, it, uh, they were all sort of under 13 or something. All the dancers, every single all, dancer in that video? All the dancers, yeah. All How the come dancers. I watched that three times and never noticed that? Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, that, I was a little bit upset that they didn't look sort of, it, I just thought if they were children dancing like adults, it was, it, it, you know, it's, the way ballroom dancing happens is so weird. You know, the way they move, the way they move their heads and that kind of rigor mortis smile that they have, uh, <laughs> that sort of thing. And, the, and I'd seen some children doing it and I thought that's so bizarre, these children dressed like adults in adult dresses, you know. So I thought it was going to be really weird. It wasn't because everyone just thought they were adults. But say that the band was entirely made out of fat people, uh, the brass section. And well, not, just dissing Wang Chung then. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> No, no, no. Well, I, one can't say fat people now, but they, they, they were thinly challenged or whatever. <laughs> uh, being, being a bit of a porker myself, I think I can, I can get away with it. So uh, was that I, just how they turned up or was that your plan? No, no, it's my plan. I cast them. What uh, was the thinking behind that? Well, it's just to Should make it a bit, a bit weird. Yeah. You know, you kind of cut to the cut to the brass section, and there are all these big, great big blokes, and then all the the audience members sitting watching the dancing are all twins. And so it was. Just, I was just trying to make it kind of be weird. And then I had this idea of the glitter ball being like an egg, and it kind of splitting open, and this glitter creature coming out, which was kind of weird. I don't know. I I I had given up uh, smoking dope by that time, so I'm not quite sure where it all came from. There might have still been some in the system as you yeah, were creating the story. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. So there's a couple of great videos in 84, because you've already mentioned Hyperactive, Thomas Dolby, and also um, Go Insane, Lindsay Buckingham, which is, again, a mad video. Yeah, a brilliant mad. video. Literally uh, mad, insane, mad. I mean, how do you sell that? I mean, storyboards will only go so far when you're trying to sell something that's got so many kind of weird elements to it. Is, it. is there an act of faith on the artist and record company's part to just accept the, yeah, he's a good, we've seen what he's done so far, he's a good director, we trust him with it. I t to a certain extent. I mean, I think at the time it was like a fashion thing almost, you know, like hyperactive and dancehall days and some of those early things that I did were kind of very, were well received and seemed, seemed at the time to be cutting edge, which, you know, seems a bit bizarre looking at them now, but at the time they were and i think you know some artists say well you know i want him i want the bloke who did that and that would that, you know that was that was how it went so um go insane was nominated for four categories the mtv video awards were you there for that uh i think i was yeah probably like the second awards or first or second do you remember what what video it lost in all categories to um i i think there was one that was done by it's a big new um Oh, I've forgotten his name, but it was it was a really quite an amazing video with where it was a kind of repetitive, it was a kind of repetitive thing where 
somebody comes out of a window and then people come in a room and it was it was pretty amazing but i can't uh i, I will give you clear it's not i don't think someone you're thinking of it's, it's another solo male singer normally associated with a big band very huge in the 70s oh uh, uh i don't know give us give us a better clue oh better clue um black and white yeah uh boy on a beach singers kind of on the back of a car i think oh uh, was it elton no american, uh, american. um <laughs> what the clues can i give not elvis he's dead um, no um he, he was a he's a drummer in a 70s american band that's like for a while the best-selling album of all time oh blimey <laughs> I don't know anything about music. I only know. Okay, it's Don Henley. Oh, Don Henley. Boys of Summer. Boys of Summer. Yes. Which which Steve Barron directed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh no, really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's right. That's 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 going to say this good for I think I think there there is the two sort of sides of video like yeah. Boys of Summer is you know it, it, it rock anthem, big you know filmic kind of a, about performance and about sort of emotion and all that sort of stuff. And then the stuff that I was kind of doing, which was, you know, just wacky, kind of out there, mad, surreal, bizarre stuff, because I was just ex experimenting and wanted to be more more arty than filmy. There was place for both those ways of doing things in those days. 1985. Yeah, so, okay, so moving to 85, quite a few, I just want to quick mentions for Joe Walsh, so also from the Eagles, The Confessor, which is another one of your truly odd videos. Yeah, very it's odd. Certainly, it's certainly worth watching. I recommend check, people check that out. Um, <laughs> also, as an anecdote, in the um, it's a great book called "I Want My MTV" about about MTV. And there's an anecdote you tell about um, Ronnie Dio about making the Rock and Roll Children video. But if you remember oh. the anecdote, oh yeah, yes, <laughs> it actually well, made me laugh out loud when I read it. Yeah, that was very unfortunate. He he was. <laughs> He was a nice chap, Ronnie, but he was very short. I mean, he, he, we can't put uh, find a more finer point. And he was, he was, he was short, and I'm not big, and he was much smaller than me. And he, he had these minders with him, and he was very. They were very touchy about anyone mentioning about his his height. I'm not sure how much of it was sort of tongue in cheek, but it was definitely a touchy subject. Were the minders really tall? Because wouldn't that accept? They were big. Yeah, wouldn't that accentuate his shortness then? Yeah, I know, it didn't make any sense. No. <laughs> and it, I think his girlfriend or his wife was wooden, he also quite tall. And he had quite long hair, which didn't help. It made him sort of look quite shorter. But uh, the uh, there was a very nice guy who was a gaffer, and the gaffer is the bloke who's the electrician and who does the lighting for the lighting cameraman or DP in, in America. And there's a there's a, a small light called a midget and he shouted, bring on the midget. <laughs> unfortunately, the the minders thought he was talking about Ronnie. <laughs> and it all got, it all went off. It was not, it was pretty bizarre. Oh, and it take him to come back to set. Like, yeah, it was. <laughs> there were a lot of placatings going on and explaining oh. going but then, you know, kind of to explain it, it's also <laughs> awful. You know, you kind of go, no, he's not talking about you, the midget. Yeah. yeah it's not that way, can you? Uh, 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 I love that. Okay. Um, it says a lot in 85. Um, Sex is a Weapon, Pat Benatar. is another great video. Again, with loads going on. The thing was that the, 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 all the TVs and all the things going on the TVs. Would you have to storyboard that? Because there's, there's a lot going on in one shot. Or is it just like... Yeah, yeah, I storyboard. 
I mean, I was thinking of that as being a bit of a magnum opus of all these video effects and things. And I, I literally very, very carefully storyboarded the whole thing. It was incredible. so much going on in it. It's it was very, a... very complicated. I mean, partly it was, again, me sort of just trying to cram loads of stuff in and make it very arty and more like a, a, a painting or a picture or an art piece than a film. But I think a lot of the uh, illusions that I was trying to make with it um, were kind of lost but or on everyone except for me uh, but it was very very tricky to do i mean i i, I spent quite a long time weeks editing it with uh, an editor we, but we only had the money to do it overnight so i i didn't sleep for weeks it was it was tricky uh, doing it and she was a nice lady i don't think she liked the video particularly much because it wasn't she would have preferred it if it was a bit more performance oriented yeah, but yeah. you know for me it was i kind of felt at the time, it was getting close to what was in my mind. But, you know, looking back on it again, it is very, very, it's rather cheesy in lots of ways. But I think the thing to remember as well is that MTV was really kicking off at the time. And these 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 videos were going into heavy rotation. So it might be played, you know, two or three times an hour or something, maybe more, I can't remember. You know, I wanted to cram lots of stuff in so that every time you saw it, you yes. maybe saw something different yeah. and got something yeah. more out of it. So I think on on one watching, it's just like a kaleidoscope of too much stuff going on. But, um, you know, in my, my theory was that it, it would take repeated viewing. And was that your first taste of Bond? Because there's a Bond-type character in there. Is that the first? I assume you were conscious you were doing Bond in that bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was a... I, t I took the meaning of the song to be about, you know, people that use sex for commercial reasons or, or use sensuality or, or sexuality as a way of making money. So it was a, a bit of a critique, whereas I think she probably meant the song to be about a person who's not behaving well, but I was trying to make it feel bigger and about, you know, selling beans by or cars with a, you know, a girl kind of sprawled across the bonnet of a car. Uh, and you kind of think, well, what's that got to do with it? But putting it in its best light for me, it was like a, a, a slightly feminist statement, but whether that worked or not, I, I don't really know. But then I suppose it was a little critique of Bond as well, being Bond was quite a misogynist character mm. in those days. Yeah. Yeah, that raises a good question. So, how often would you talk to the artist about the meaning of the song? I mean, do you ever get like an artist saying that's not what the song's about? So, I don't like that idea. Well, so I, it, it was different every time. I seem to remember. I talk to them a bit, and then talk. To, I'd maybe show them my. Uh, I'd write a little treatment script or do storyboards and talk them through it. But quite a lot of the time, they you know just weren't that interested or engaged. You know, they got the I, vague idea. They wanted to turn up shoot it and go home you know not all of them were kind of dedicated to creating art so much Kevin 85 a quick question about Madonna you did the Virgin tour video yeah how engaged were you with her in in what you were going to film and how it's going to be filmed and and how many nights would you shoot to cover everything well it's a bit difficult to remember but I I did used to shoot quite a lot of concert films in those days it was difficult I don't the problem the problem with that was she was sort of you know really becoming a mass uh, well she was she was big she was a big star but still quite teeny boppery and i think was on the cusp of becoming more arty more serious artists in, in in a sense and her manager wanted a film but you know it kind of went a bit 
they didn't really want to put lots of resources into it and they didn't really it was it was very half-hearted so i didn't get enormous number of cameras i got uh, i can't remember maybe six cameras how many do you ideally need to do like the job you want to do well you need a, a well in those days it was film so you know you uh you needed enough cameras to be able to have runners who could take the film out out of the camera take it away to the loaders and take the new film canister back to the camera uh, and reload the camera and film the film again. So there was always a sort of overlap. So that you, so even if you had six cameras, you wouldn't have six cameras rolling at the same time. And you kind of wanted to have one camera dedicated to a close-up, then, you know, one camera to wide, sort of doing tracking across the stage, a big wide shot so you can see the crowd going wide. You, stu- you soon run out of cameras. And also the other thing is that the, 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 the venues used to not like, not like having film crews there because you'd take up seats. So to get the greatest shot of the middle of the stage with a long lens to get a great close-up of the artist, Madonna, for instance, that would be like right in the middle of the audience. So I'd say, look, can I have six, 10 seats here that I can take out and put my camera here? And they go, no. So you have to find, you know, an angle which wasn't as as uh, so brilliant and try and work it. And that, and that concert particularly, I think, was rather shit bollock and scramble, you know, trying to find the, uh, the right angles and the right camera and 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 it was it, you know it was it was okay but uh, i think we only shot over i think we maybe shot over two nights or maybe it was only one night i can't even remember so long ago it is what it is the fans liked it it's it, it was also she she was a nice enough person but she was quite hands-on with the editing she didn't really like the editing style we were doing and um i was trying to sort of upcut it a bit and i think she didn't like that she didn't like the choice of things and eventually it kind of got to a point where i think we we didn't agree on it but um you know she's the star so <laughs> that's i think her version went out okay uh coming to another really iconic 80s video don't you forget about me simple minds i guess one of those hugely iconic 80s videos when you hear or when you see a video on TV, do you watch it as one of yours that comes on? No. You don't? You don't? Well, uh, I, yeah, no, maybe I would. I mean, Depending on the video, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Depends on whether I want to remember it or not. So when's the last time you saw this video? Oh, 10 years ago. Really? Maybe maybe longer. You know, maybe I should just give a bit of a preamble to it. You know, the, the story kind of behind, you know, Don't You Forget About Me was that it was a a song from a movie and I was doing quite a few videos which included movie clips were, were used in movies and at the time movies liked having songs mixed with videos to play on MTV because it was great great publicity obviously and so there were quite a lot of these kind of hybrid videos which had bits of film in uh, and this one was from the breakfast club I seem to remember originally I had this concept of doing don't you forget about me which isn't really english as we know it but i was going to have someone kind of going up north and returning home and it was going to be very gritty kind of social realists film i think everyone was into it the band were into it the 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 record company was sort of into it and then the film company just went no 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 or somebody went no it needs to be something else and so at that point i had to change track and re have a new concept very very quickly within you know a matter of a few days and it was christmas time uh, and so we literally shot over i think it might have even been boxing day or something and it, it so it was a very last minute put together kind of concept which is why 
probably the only person who knows what it means is me because <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is so fucking bizarre but uh, uh we shot at nebworth in the countryside and, and and the other weird thing about it was that the band didn't write the song mm. and, and they they didn't like it i seem to remember you know they just didn't like the song at all you, you know would, and it must have been a bit galling for them because it was such a big <laughs> big hit but anyway i'm kind of ready to talk about it audio commentary simple minds don't you forget about me three two one play okay so it starts in this sort of empty space and my my idea was i'd seen a photo of somebody sitting outside their house with every single thing they'd ever owned in their entire life well it was not their entire life everything they owned in the house but put out on the lawn outside and uh so that is kind of what i was trying to do i was trying to make this look like because it was nostalgic uh don't you forget about me it was kind of his life or the band's life from being children up to being adult with every single thing that you might own all piled into one room with all the, the kind of crap that you buy and all the stuff you you uh put on uh, jumble your life up with so it starts off with a lot of this performance stuff and you know the, i had this thing called a luma crane which was very uh innovative at the time where you could get these big sweeping shots and uh, a lot of wide angle stuff and uh, I think this, is this bit where he, the camera starts going down this is sort of luma crane so it's a wide angle lens luma crane tracking down his body going down to toys because he's a kid and these, <laughs> these are all the, the things you first own, like toys and cots and whatnot. And he's walking around singing. I don't think that I don't think the band knew what the hell was going on. <laughs> I was say, do you explain the concept to them? No, no, I don't uh, think I did. Um, uh, and then he's becoming a teenager, so he's listening to music, he's got a jukebox. Uh, and uh, you know, more performance stuff of the band. Uh, and I had to get clips of the film in. So you know, I did that by having sort of TVs you might own um, with, and put clips on the film. Now, this was a sort of circular shot where I did the old classic doing a 360 degree thing and then just got Jim to sort of run round and be be back in the shot magically as it moves along. And then there's- Were there takes when he didn't quite make it in time? Yeah, yeah, there were. So we probably did several takes to get him to, to, get him to look like he was there, not, uh, you know, as soon as he's off camera, I go, run, 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 <laughs> so run, run, and came back to thing there. And there's all this sort of teenage stuff, and then there's more like young adult stuff. And he, the, we, the poor uh, art director just had lorries and lorries full of junk that was just kept being loaded into this room, uh, you know, beds and all sorts took quite a long time to film. Um, and then you'll see it's getting fuller and fuller and fuller. Uh, I mean, it was, a, it was a kind of rousing song. So was the room empty and then you built it up as you filmed or was it filled yeah. and you worked backwards? 
no, no, I, did, I think I did it in time. And then suddenly there's this moment in the song where it all goes quiet and goes different. And then I took all the stuff out. And so then he's alone just with, for some reason, with a circle of TVs all showing clips from the Breakfast Club. <laughs> why, I even I've forgotten why that is. I have no idea at all. Um, and that's him sort of walking around and then coming in with the band and then he's he's not singing it's him on the tv singing and you know just trying to make it be interesting and unusual I mean I think it kind of worked as a sort of enigmatic piece and it was a good song and he's a great performer the band were good but you know whether it matters that anybody knows what the hell's going on is another matter <laughs> some people would go, would go I, guess it, I guess it doesn't i guess people wouldn't get it unless you explained it i would not have had a clue no it, but it's still a great video yeah i mean it's just it's just bonkers you know it's part of the looking back the ages you could do that sort of stuff where you were just trying something and you had a short amount of time to do it not enormous amount of money and just go in there and do it and that's what it ended up being we you didn't get a second chance that was fun climbing's keeps your favorite film of the 80s my favorite film of the 80s is very obscure it was called blood wedding by this spanish director called sara and it is absolutely amazing it's most uh, i definitely recommend anyone who can to watch it because it is it's it's a sort of about these flamenco dancers uh, with flamenco music, but it is also brutal. I mean, it is really good. Uh, I just remember it was stuck in my mind. That was a film that I loved. Oh, actually, the other one was Ran. What a great film Ran was. Oh, amazing film. Kiri Kurosawa, yeah. genius. Okay. Favourite TV series or programme of the 80s? Well, uh, my mate Steve Barron did a really great TV series called Storyteller that I, I really liked. And I kind of was sort of rather envious of his talent at doing something so brilliant. Well, this king woke up the next morning after a night of the kind of dreams you only dream about. And he opened his eyes and almost yanked off his ear because he found himself under a tree which certainly wasn't where he'd fallen asleep. And more confusing, it was a tree from which he could see the edge of his kingdom. And he began to dance as only kings once lost and then found can dance. A jig, a jiggle joggle and a leap. I've heard and this story and you're telling it all wrong. But uh, I think I, I really like murder mysteries and stuff like that. And I think Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes was probably the one I would I wouldn't miss that. That was great. My mind rebels at stagnation. Give me problems. Give me work. Give me the most abstruse cryptogram, the most intricate analysis. And I'm in my proper atmosphere. Then I can dispense with artificial stimulants. But I abhor the dull room of existence okay, favorite book of the 80s oh probably the white hotel which was a very surreal book that was yeah i think probably probably that i can't even remember who wrote it actually but it was really quite extreme <laughs> you like extreme stuff clearly yeah uh, well it was arty you know it was yeah. arty weird she stumbled over a route picked herself up and ran on blindly there was nowhere to run but she went on running the crash of foliage grew louder behind her for they were men and could run faster. Even if she reached the end of the wood, there would be more soldiers waiting to shoot her, but these few extra moments of life were precious. Only they were not enough. There was no escape except to become one of the trees. 
She would gladly give up her body, her rich life, to become a tree frozen in humble existence, the home of spiders and ants, so that the soldiers would rest their rifles against the tree and feel in their pockets for cigarettes. They would shrug away their mild disappointment, saying, one did not matter, and they would go home. But she, a tree, would be filled with joy, and her leaves would sing her gratitude to God as the sun set through the trees around her. Okay, favourite album of the 80s? Oh, blimey now, that's tricky. Because you don't like 80s music. It's weird, I'm, I'm talking to you on an 80s music podcast when you don't like 80s music. I'm not, I'm not a great fan of 80s music. I mean, I, you know, I suppose my... You're the enemy, my... really, and I'm interviewing you. <laughs> well, it's because my, you know, my, my main music era of my growing up teenage, early 20s was the 70s, yeah. you know, so... The second uh, decade for music, I'll give you that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but um, I'm not sure I can think of an, an album I loved I, I think oh, there's uh, one 80s album that you liked come on well I'd, I'd have to say it's one of Adam's Adam Ant's albums I just think he was so brilliant those all those songs that he he did with Marco and stuff the guitar work was brilliant the singing was brilliant the production was brilliant and they're kind of so theatrical and catchy and edgy so it would have to be something at one of Adam's definitely that would be my my favorite Your favourite live event attended in the 80s? Could be music, could be theatre, could be anything, but a live event you attended? I think I saw... Oh, live... You really... The tricky questions, because I was hearing it so long ago, but I, I remember going to see Sweeney Todd, the, the musical, and that was... I was really quite blown away by that, and I don't like musicals, and that, but that was really brilliant. Is that in the UK? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> The very last question. Music video you wish you had directed. Oh, blimey. What, that actually got made? Yes. So when you saw uh, it, you thought, oh, I wish I'd done that video. Yeah. Well, I suppose the, the first obvious one was Sledgehammer, which was, you know, Stephen Johnson. He was, and that was done through Limelight, which was my production company at the time as well. And I knew Stephen and it was just, it was brilliant. You know, it's a brilliant piece of work. I mean, it's so arty and, and um, clever and witty and just surprising and different to everything else and very, very much in that kind of 80s sort of style of just trying to do something artistic you know, that was cool i wouldn't have mind having that on my cv yeah, yeah. <laughs> who wouldn't eh Okay, 1986, um, another major artist you, you filmed the concert footage for was Prince. Prince, uh, yeah. So how did that compare with the Madonna experience? Uh, well, it was equally as frustrating in a way. Um, he, he, I think he was notoriously 
not a very communicative bloke. And uh, I did some films with Sheila E and some of his other bands, Morris Day, some of the satellite bands that he had going. I did music videos for them and they were quite good. And then I, I did this concert for Sheila E and he turned up at the end of the concert. In fact, he made her get off stage and then performed solo. <laughs> On her own gig? At her own gig, yeah. Oh man. Uh, so obviously the crowd liked it and went mad. I didn't realize um, that was gonna happen. Obviously we were filming her, so we filmed that and edited it and it became part of the show. I think it went out as a TV concert and he saw it and he really liked the way it had been filmed and liked the way it had been edited. So he asked me to shoot some live stuff for him as well, which I did. But he, all this time, uh, he'd only talked to me via either his manager or his bouncers. So uh, uh, he'd send me little notes, uh, some of which I've still got. Things like, uh, you know, during the break, would you mind getting a close-up of the keyboard player? Uh, love Prince, and then he'd do a big scrawl like his big Princey kind of signature and uh, things on it. But so he wouldn't actually talk to me, uh, which was sort of frustrating, really. But you know, he was a he was a big artist, and it was it was quite a thrill to do those big concerts. And then then we did have money, and we did have lots of cameras, and you know. But so how many cameras is it for that in comparison uh, to Madonna? Uh, oh, ma many more than Madonna. I mean, I, you know, it could have been up to 14 cameras or something like that, which is, uh, you know, tricky. The way to direct that is you have 14 cameras and 14 monitors. So uh, I'm looking at all the monitors and saying, okay, camera five, can you make sure you're ready for the guitar solo that's coming in? Uh, the guy's going to run in from your right. You know, I sort of basically have to have the, the concert scripted so that I know what songs are happening, what the breaks are in the songs, where the solos are, what's going to happen if there's dance routines, I have to know where they're going to be so that all the cameras are there ready to pick, pick up. So it's a totally different type of, fil of filmmaking, totally different kind of, of, of directing. But I liked doing that as well. I enjoyed it as much as the sort of nutty arty stuff. That, that was the thing that I found interesting. I haven't seen your videos. And then seeing you do these concert videos, thinking, well, is there enough there to keep you interested when you have so much of a visual, <laughs> a great eye for the visual, watching a concert and somebody performing, would that get a bit boring? How do you keep it fresh? Well, it, it did get boring and that's, and so I gave it up in the end. In fact, the, the, I, the, the, the one that killed it for me is I did a concert for Van Halen. Then I did have 14 cameras. Uh, I had, I think it was called Live Without a Net, something like that. Um, we shot over two or three nights and they had a basically a kind of half an hour 20 minutes half an hour drum solo in the oh, middle yay, yay. which which you know when you've got 14 <laughs> cameras filming a drum solo uh, which goes on for 20 minutes over oh. two nights just just to watch the, the the footage is that's about two days worth of drum non-stop <laughs> literally drove me insane did you pop out for a fag during that 20 minutes <laughs> Like everybody else does during the drum solo. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, I don't actually smoke, but I probably... I would start. I would start. <laughs> I would uh, so that, that just killed it for me. I just, after that concert, I said, I'm not, I'm not doing any more concerts. It's too, it's too brain numbing. So uh, Yeah, I feel your yeah. pain on that one, yeah. <laughs> 1987. All right, so going into 87, and there's, there's this is an absolute masterpiece, Fleetwood Mac, Big Love. It's an interesting one to do, also. Audio commentary. Fleetwood Mac. B. 
Big love. Three, two, one, play. Okay, well, I had this concept of it, of, of it being a kind of one-shot video, but not making it easy for myself. I wanted to do it as a, as a track back. So we started in uh, this house, which was in the middle of nowhere. It was owned by the family that invented Kleenex tissues, I seem to remember. Um, and so then, you know, it goes through all the sorts of things that I was interested in doing, video effects, and you see Lindsay in a room, in a picture through a window, then he's on stage, and the camera's continually pulling back. The, uh, the difficult thing was this was not motion control, like normally one would do motion control. So this is all done with me timing it with a stopwatch and telling the grip to move the camera at a certain time. And, to, and I worked out how fast we were going or slow we were going in order to make it seamless to go from one scene to another. So, you know, I was getting quite into all these technical things. And then obviously it's fairly heavily concept uh, uh, worked out beforehand. Otherwise, all the jigsaw puzzle pieces wouldn't work together. So, this, you know, going from the TV to the beach to the stage to another TV. To, and then within that, there's the kind of love story of Lindsay uh, and this girl. Um, I think uh, it, that kind of repeats as a story. And then you see the, there's this band, the band are on a beach. I was trying to get some lights under the sea to make it look like the sea was lit up, but that never happened. Then there was, it goes into this bit where he kind of wakes up and he's in a room and then the room splits up and it goes totally surreal. Didn't quite work, but it's all the bits fly away and he's in space. I mean, it was just <laughs> really quite odd. Um, and that then becomes a picture on the wall that pulls back. You know, it looks pretty clunky now um, because I think these days with special effects and, and, and motion control, it would be a lot smoother. Uh, and you know, now I this was yes, 30 years ago. Now I actually know what I'm doing, so it probably, I'll probably do it better. But the uh, and we built this little set of a corridor so that we could move down that and have repeated things. And then the story kind of ends with a sort of almost a love scene. Um, and just as they're about to kiss, I think the oh very demurely pulls the blinds down and then we're back at the house that we started in which was uh during the daytime but now we're at the house in nighttime and pulling back and finding finding the band so i you know it was kind of quite complicated to to work it all out and then uh what i wanted to do was to run the whole thing backwards again and that was tricky because um there wasn't a machine which could run things backwards so I had to chop it into bits and run all the little sections uh, backwards uh, and uh, on, on a little machine that could only do 30 second chunks and then chop them all together. But uh, it all goes all the way back and ends up with Lindsay bump right at the end, his uh, eyeballs. Uh, I mean, that's, a, that's a masterpiece to me, that video. Absolutely I think it's absolutely brilliant. So... Uh, Got so many questions um so the, so the going back bit at the end the timings for that how would you work out 
you'd have to speed it accordingly to how, how much time there is left to do that in the end of the song, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, it was suggested by the song. The song has that sort of kind of slightly weird riff at the end, which, you know, I think Lindsay Buckingham felt was, you know, probably the climax of this love story. It's probably a bit of jetain uh, going on there, if you know what I mean. So I incorporated them, him and this girl kind of superimposed onto the backwards footage so that it's not just going backwards it's also got some other elements on it as well to make it a bit more interesting I, I believe Stevie Nicks was a bit pissed off because she, she didn't like seeing her dancing sped up but okay. that, was, that was part of the concept I mean it was a difficult video to do technically it was a difficult video to do politically because the band were not in a good yeah. state they all had separate managers there wasn't a, a band manager they each had their own managers and so the whole thing was very fraught so did they all have to individually sign it off then or was it just a, like is Lindsay and stevie that cared the most and the rest were fine with it i'm not entirely sure i think you know really because it was Lindsay's song i think it was mostly him in charge of, of it and i was doing the video because i had worked with him for you know done a couple of solo things with him beforehand so you know he got me in to do this and it was it was nice to do i mean actually i was an enormous fleetwood mac fan but not this version of fleetwood mac oh, right. I, I, you know i loved peter green's fleet yeah just the blues such stuff, a great yeah. band you know that, that blues brand and peter green was such a brilliant guitarist so i was i was quite thrilled to, to be working with fleetwood mac and mick fleet was a nice guy and they, you know they were all they were nice people but they were i, I remember Lindsay turned up on, I think on the first day of the shoot with with a with a Winnebago, we provided a Winnebago, uh, you know, this big sort of caravan, snazzy caravan thing for them to hang out in while uh, while we were getting ready to shoot. Uh, but Lindsay brought his own, which didn't go down well. And then the okay. next day, the next day they all had their own. One. Uh, you know, they all brought their own. So there's a lot of yeah. politics going on behind yeah. the scenes. But so when you finish the video and you're in the editing suite and you look at the final version of it, mm. is there a sense? Is it is it a feeling of Oh, I'm glad it's finished. Are you looking at it thinking, that's, that's good, that? When I look at it, I see all the flaws in it. I see things which didn't go how I, exactly how I wanted. You know, a lot of the keying, you know, if you look at a lot of work from the 80s, and I, and I was doing a lot of, of chroma keying, it was very, very primitive. So you get these horrible edges and, and, and the things not quite lining up and the lighting not matching. And, you know, that, that would be the sort of thing that would drive me up the wall, you know, and I, I just got it as as good as I possibly could, but it was, I was fighting the technology at the time. It just wasn't up to doing what I wanted it to do. So you can kind of see sort of little blue edges around things. You know, most, most of these videos, when I look back at them, I, I see the flaws. <laughs> uh, maybe that's just, you know, that's how it is if you create something and you, I can't think I've ever, I ever did one where I thought well, that went hundred percent how I wanted. The thing is you never see it for the first time, do you? No, you're always from the inside out, so you never get to see it the way I the way I saw it. No, that's true. I see it for the first time in my own head. Yeah, um, and yeah, just, and that's already yeah, the perfect version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It never quite lives up to the to, to to the version in your head. Yeah. So I think if that was made today, it would be like technically perfect, but it would just be missing something for that version. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe there's think... a trade off. So yeah, I yeah. think that's the best version you could have of that video. Definitely. Oh well, thanks for saying that. But I, th I think there is a, a sort of feeling uh, of the videos in those days. There is slightly rough and ready. They had a, a vibe and an atmosphere and an energy. Uh, it, you know, they're not perfect. They were pretty 
pretty surreal and pretty out there and there's some you know strange concepts and all that sort of stuff but it definitely you know it definitely had energy and vibe and an, and an upness to it and it was creative it was you know trying to be creative um whereas i you know i think a lot quite a lot of modern stuff now is sort of rather you know generic 1988 quick mention for a couple of videos i reckon people should should check out there's the moody blues one no more lies and for the fergal sharky one for if this is love the so two songs i didn't have any idea about really great songs and great videos just want to mention that to people to check out if you remember doing either of those two i do yeah uh Both really good really good videos and really good songs yeah the the the, the one for fergal i seen from i was quite pleased with at the time and it had it had this dancer in it who i thought was really marvelous uh dancer who i then used in license to kill actually oh okay that's good right okay um also there's a couple of videos where you did the first version and they were remade yeah this is there's the paul abdul one for knockdown yeah a couple because rod stewart for lost in you as well yeah yeah and you said that you did the first version of pour some sugar on me i did the only reason i ask that is because russell Mulcahy's credited as a director on that as well is that wrong then so you definitely directed that version the one with the house being destroyed yeah that was definitely me okay that's interesting so those uh, three so it wasn't necessarily like, the, the the deaf leopard one was the uk version it wasn't like it was never these were all shown well the deaf leopard one definitely was wasn't it i think i think it and then was remade uh, for the u.s market yeah I, I can't quite remember but various things were happening by this time in the 80s and one was that everyone was getting a bit more sophisticated and and, and understanding music videos as, as being marketing tools. So that, you know, the kind of wacky, sort of nutty, bizarre ideas and, and, and the sort of uh, Wild West creativeness uh, going on was being forgotten or eased out and record companies were using the the really wanting the, the videos to work for uh, selling records. And I think also a lot of the bands started realizing that the record companies weren't paying for the music videos. They, they were paying for the music videos. It came out of their royalties at the end of the day, which I don't think a lot of them realized at the time. So they were also becoming more sophisticated. And I think that didn't help me because I was still trying to be experimental and do you know, kind of things which were maybe not mainstream. But so co consequently, I did I did Paula Abdul's video, Knocked Out, was it was her first single. And she I'd worked with her on quite a few videos where she'd been the choreographer. And uh, she was a really nice lady, a nice girl we got on with good friends. And she wanted me to do her video. And it was a it was a kind of dance video. And I just you know it just wasn't that great i tried to sort of make it be all about her dancing but yeah interesting shots in it and interesting things in it they're kind of like blended out because there's still bits in the finished version oh are there yeah yeah there's like there's really interesting shots that are kind of like just made to look generic and normal in the actual finished one that's right like, yeah <laughs> yeah i think that's what happened I, I just i think the 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 you know the record company just didn't think it was it was kind of popularist enough to get her you know the young girls who were going to be going out and buying her records i was still thinking of it as a dance piece you know an arty dance piece but so that got remade and then um what was the other one rod stewart uh, lost in you rod stewart yeah, that was hilarious poor old rod um <laughs> i mean you know i had this idea of this camera technique that i wanted to do and make it very kind of edgy and i was filming at very very 
this is a, again me kind of experimenting with the film, the film itself, and and I and I was filming with film at a very high ASA effectively, which which meant it was very grainy. I was also filming with dropped frames, so it kind of felt quite visceral because I wanted him to just come across as a bit edgier and, and a bit more like an indie band bloke rather than the dinosaur that he was at the time. <laughs> yeah, that's and, not quite right, is it? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I had this technique of sort of filming at, at two frames a second and running the camera around so that you get these sudden, just really fast camera moves that would end with him in real time singing and then zooming off, giving it a lot of energy. And that was my thoughts behind it. But when he saw it, he absolutely hated it. I mean, he literally hated it. And because it didn't have any girls in it, he's so mad. I suppose he could have said that beforehand, but he didn't. He went and reshot it. Uh, I seem to remember the story of the, in the video that he reshot was him being a barman in a yeah, strip club yeah, with, yeah. with pole dancers. It's, yeah, really classy, you know, just like, just to, you know. Yeah, yeah, not the sort of thing I would have done. So, <laughs> so uh, that was... I mean, you've taken something that's like the original video, again, it's not a very good quality one on YouTube, but it's, you can, enough to make out the, the, the style of the video. It's interesting, It's it's got different shots in it, and again, They've taken some of the, your bits and put it in the video. Like the performance bits, yeah, they still filmed him performing it as well. There's like two performance bits, one in black and white, one in the colour of the bits you did. Just take all the interesting bits out and just make it this generic, dull... Label. Well, you know, it was just, you know, for me, the idea of a, you know, Rod polishing a glass while a, <laughs> some, some poor girl kind of jumps, slides up and down a pole is just horrible, you know. I just, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's not... Anyway. Good. We, so did he tell you when when he told you he hated it? Was he like you watching it together? Was it? Just yeah, like we were all in a room. I got summoned to the record company. There was sort of I think it was Jeff Ayroff, who was the head of Virgin or something, and then there was Rod and his manager and the various people there, and they all go. So Rod hates it. He thinks it's the worst thing he's ever done. He can't stand it. it, it you know what can you do about it? And I said, well, you know, this is my this is it. You know, this was what I told you I was going to do, and you know i was quite pleased with it um and the pour some sugar on me def leopard when you were filming at the time all bits of plaster falling on them were they objecting to it then or was it only when they saw the edit they thought no it's not what I want. it's not you know it's, uh, it's when they saw the edit they didn't they didn't like it we shot it in ireland i mean i i had the con i thought oh it'd be great do a concert in a house that's being demolished i don't know why <laughs> i just thought it would make make it more interesting and be a bit tensionful and whatever and they seemed to like the idea at the time so i found a, a house that was due for demolition in ireland actually it was in in dublin just outside dublin uh, i've still got the, the the headlines of english director flies in demolishes uh edwardian house and flies out again something like that <laughs> Yeah, I filmed the house being destroyed and bashed down in Ireland and then came back and shot them in a studio um, with, you know, kind of fake art directed bits falling around them. And, you know, it's successful to a small extent. You know, I don't think you really believe they're in the house get, being demolished, but, uh, you know, perhaps at the time it kind of felt a bit edgy. I, I kind of quite like the idea that the, the people demolishing the house with these big stocky kind of, I've tried to make them be like what I imagine sort of Russian lady road workers would look like, you know, they're kind of bashing the house down. The band, when they, when I finished it and did it, the band just didn't like it. I think, again, they didn't think it was sexy enough. They went and redid something which was like a, a big sort of 
stadium type thing where you only ever see them as little sort of people running about. Whereas actually I think what's quite interesting about the one I did is, is I did a lot of close-ups and you actually see them in close up you see their personalities, you, you see their faces, which I, which I find more interesting. But when you look at other sort of heavy metal-ish bands at that time, they were, you know, much more into that big stage iconic, you know, kind of... There's about 50,000 videos that all look the same. Yeah. Uh, quick mention for Howard Jones, The Prisoner. She went back with Howard Jones again. It's a brilliant video and a brilliant song. I actually love this one. Um, yeah. Any yeah. memories of making that one? Yeah, yeah. It was uh, it was good again. You know, I think one can tell in that one that the, the, the technology, even though I'm still kind of mucking about with, you know, graphics and trying to make the, it become more like a, an art thing than a just normal film. Uh, but you can tell the technology's moved on. I mean, it's... It's much slicker than the than the early early days ones. Uh, In contrast to what is love at the beginning of your eighties, comparing that one to yeah 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 quite different yeah. And but the one uh, the one the Howard Jones one I was most pleased with, with was Lift Me Up. I don't know if you yes, saw that yes, one. Yes, yes, in is in the old films. Yeah, using all the old jazz films and putting him inside this world of jazz films and stuff like that um i just thought that that old footage was so amazing those really that was that was good fun to do so 1989 was that yeah okay another one from 89 which is in a way you could say is probably the most important video you made was license to kill in terms of your career um do you agree with that in terms of what it led to yeah, in a, well, I, I, I do direct the, the, the title sequences for James Bond films, but that's not my job. You know, my, my main job is advertising. That's I've been an advertising director for 35 years. You know, it, it was an overlap with... Is there as you the director of the Guinness ad, the one where they start in the pub and they go back in... Yeah, yeah, that's right. Evolution. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So my time overlapped between you know getting fed up with doing music videos and starting to do commercials and and you know i love doing the james bond title sequences but that's really like a little it's a sideline thing i do every once every couple of years or whenever they bring them out but it was due to i think pretty much due to license to kill and license to kill was once again a video that had to use parts of the movie along with the song so with the movie clips do they give you the clips to use or do you get to choose them yourself and is there like they specify it's got to have at least one minute's worth of clips in the video is it that specific it's slightly different each time actually yeah on the whole i'm given a, a set of shots from the movies so it might be they give me a, a, a tape with shots that they want, they're allowed to use, or it might be a trailer or whatever. I don't get to sit and watch the whole film and say, I want that bit, that bit, that bit. Right. I get kind of given given the bits, even though when I'm given the bits, I can choose out the bits I'm given. I can choose which bits I, I use. And then I think on the whole, I've no, I can't think I've ever been told you haven't got enough filming or there's too much filming. I think they just sort of leave it to leave it to me. It was, uh, but I did a lot of those types of things. The one I remember was, which I was quite pleased with, was um, Adamant and Stuart Copeland who did, did one together. Yes, I and, saw that one. Yes. <laughs> it was always difficult to think how do you get the clips of the movie in to 
a music video without it just looking cheesy and crap. Uh, and so in that one, the story was that Stuart and, and Adam had gone on holiday, but unbeknownst to them, they booked a holiday where they were galley slaves. And so they were row rowing, and Adam's rowing away as a galley slave. And then halfway through it, they, this sort of lady, who's the one who sort of whips them all and makes them row harder, hands them out headphones so that they can all watch the, the in-galley movie. <laughs> and the sort of screen comes down and they're given a bit of a time off from rowing so they can watch the film. So it's kind of always, you know, a bit of it was always a bit of a challenge to how to get the get the film in seamlessly with the uh, with the other material. That's very um, original, very original way of doing it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. And then in in um, in License to Kill, the way I I did it was to think, okay, it's like a title sequence. I you know, I loved the title sequences to to the Bond movies, and so I thought, okay, I'll I'll make it. It's a sort of tip of my hat to the graphics of the title sequence. And that kind of makes it logical that the Bond clips would be in amongst it. And um, that's how that came about, really. Audio commentary. Gladys Knight, License to Kill. I know that song. Three, two, one, play. Okay, so it opens with this sort of aperture thing, which is a sort of a little bit like um, the James Bond gun barrel logo. Uh, I think that might be me, me misunderstanding it. I think I thought it was an aperture <laughs> rather than a gun barrel. So I sort of filmed this this sort of aperture thing opening up like a the back of a camera aperture and had these great lady dancers sort of coming up through it and Gladys there singing and wiping through to clips from the film which were, you know, it's fun to actually edit these clips together, actually. You know, I enjoyed doing that. Uh, again, I did it this with David Yardley, who I'd gone right back, started my very first video, Heaven 17, he, he edited and he edited this one as well. Uh, and then I just used all these colours and the graphics and sort of, which were a kind of homage to Morris Binder's titles, um, you know, I love the, the colours of, um, particularly of You Only Live Twice. I love the colours in that with all the volcanoes erupting and uh, parasols opening and geisha girls. And then I sort of used the thing of the silhouettes, which was kind of like in make the girls making the L's of kill and, uh, you know, all the tropes and kind of the things that one expects in a, James Bond title sequence. Um, I think it was kind of funny. I remember filming with Gladys, who was a lovely lady, but she 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 wasn't that keen on the song because she said, I would never sing License to Kill. You know, she was very nice. She would have she would have done license to license for everyone to have a great big hug and be friendly. She would have preferred You'd rubbish in a Bond film, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. But then you know, I've got this girl lying on the gun with all these bright colours, and it's. So this actually, isn't actually filmed in widescreen, then, to be able to actually lie onto the. No, 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 no. It's filmed all, all, all in ordinarily, and then with the cut off, and then I tried to make little links through to the film um, from the graphics I was doing. Uh, so there's a, there's a point where. 
the, the little guy falls off a hand and then he, you see the similar thing in the in the film clips um yeah and obviously there's links of you know gun firing and the image shattering and uh i was a sort of yeah i think also the colors were slightly uh, a little bit like um gilbert and george who i liked at the time were doing these sort of quite vivid colors and uh oh, it's great to sort of put the action in with the with the graphics and I was doing this on um, where well, I'd shot on film, but then the film was transferred to video and then the video would be edited in a video suite. So I could do things like, you know, shrink the little girl down and put her on a wine glass or whatever it happened to be to create the graphic parts of the, of the image. Yeah. Um, so it's quite controllable, actually, because it was you, you do it in what was called an online suite with little machines called an ADO where you could, in real time, shrink something down and move it around and make it fly about. And, you know, so I could make the timings of all these girls going down into the thing right, although it, actually that's the opening run backwards because yeah. uh, we ran out of time to do <laughs> to do the shot. But you know, it's quite a good way of working, quite a visceral, immediate way of working graphically. It's a bit like cutting up pictures from a magazine and collaging them together and making an image, and and that was quite enjoyable. And it looked different to the title sequences. But it had a it had a feeling of the title sequences. Yeah. The title sequences yeah, same time. were still being done on optical film, and so they were actually what you could do. The special effects you can do optically with film, like projecting and refilming and reprojecting and doing internegs and all the sort of clever stuff that Morris did, is still pretty limiting. Yeah, you know, and it was not. It, it had a very analog feel and it was rather nice, but you can't do the sort of stuff that I was doing in that video with it. So I think in the intervening years, there was like a seven year hiatus between Bond films, License to Kill and Goldeneye, uh, in which time Maurice had died. And the producers, I think, just remembered that I'd created those images for that video and that it was maybe kind of a bit more sophisticated at the time than the last title sequence actually the title sequence for license to kill is pretty clunky if you watch it and i so i think it the video compared well with it and they remembered that and brought me in to do the title sequence for goldeneye which was fantastic but i'm not, certainly not dissing maurice because he uh, he was the one who invented the whole language he invented the what the language of james bond the land language of spies the language of sensual excitement and eroticism in and mystery and you know that everybody's copied that the silhouettes the flame the thing that you know that's all yeah you created the tropes yeah yeah exactly. there was it in the back of your mind that this is kind of like an audition piece 
No, no, I wouldn't have been my wildest dreams that thought I'd get a chance to do the title sequence. Uh, so I was absolutely thrilled. I mean, actually, it was terribly difficult at the time. I was very torn because I was I was meant to be doing a TV series and I got the op- offer to do Goldeneye. And I could either do the TV series or I could do Goldeneye and turn down the TV series. And it was unfortunately, it was a TV series that was sort of friends of mine were doing. And so it was it was tricky. It was a difficult decision to make. It was the fast show, actually. Nice. Do you ever regret that? Do you ever think, did I make the right No, I don't, re- I don't regret it at all. Because, yeah. But, you know, I, do, I, I wish I'd been able to do both. Yeah. But I'm still, I'm still mates with Paul and Charlie anyway. Okay, and of course you did um, Smashy and Nicey. Yeah. Uh, which is absolutely brilliant. The early 70s were Halicon days, but then in 1976 a cancer appeared, a smash it. No, I'm sorry, mate, I object to that description. No, a cancer appeared, Smashy, tell him about the cancer. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, you daft DJ. You're breaking records. <laughs> you hopeless, bungling amateur. All right, babe. My 80s ography, quick fire round. Um, what's the favourite oh. single shot in any of your videos? My favourite single shot? Oh, blimey. Well, I think, you know, actually, the, I did... I did like the shot in Don't You Forget About Me where the camera tracks down the body because it, it had this cr- crane called the Lumar crane. Now, so up to that point, uh, before a Lumar crane was in, invented by this, I think it's a French bloke called Mr. Lumar actually, you'd actually have to sit on the crane. So it would be a crane with a bloke at the, at the top of it holding a camera, or with a camera. So it was not very manoeuvrable. And the Lumar crane was very light and it had the camera at the end and it could be swung round uh, very fast and it had a remote control so you could re- um, control the head of the camera and I used it on that shot so uh, it, it would have been very difficult to get that shot in any other way than with this the piece of equipment and I seem to remember that lyrics are something down, 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 down and this high shot is going up with a wide angle lens with uh, you know looking at the singer and we're going down his body and down, 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 down. And I remember thinking, that, that's not a bad shot. <laughs> that works quite well. A uh, song you directed you thought would be a bigger hit. Oh, well, I did quite a few videos for my mate Adamant and it was not at the height of his his fame. It was, they, they were sort of falling off a little bit and I thought that would have been some of those songs deserved better because I'm a big fan of his music, actually. It's on the Can't Set Rules About Love. Yeah, that was a nice song. video and I thought I was, yeah. It was a nice song, and and uh, Apollo Nine was a good was a was a good song as well. That could have done better. Uh, I did do a video for the this band called the Hooters, who are a Canadian band, Five Hundred Miles. I really liked the song. I really liked the video, and it was very emotive. I used the sort of imagery of trains, and it, it's the time when the Soviet Union was starting to fall apart, and the first trains were coming from I think from Czechoslovakia or somewhere past the Iron Curtain, there, there was a route out of, of the Soviet Union via a train. The only way you could get out was on this train and people were piling onto this train. And I used images of trains from the hobos in, in the Dust Bowl of America who were traveling on trains, jumping on trains in order to get to California so that they could get work in California. And, and I used all these images, it was very emotive and it's a great song and I wish that had, had done better and more people had seen that because that was, uh, you know, it was not only a, a, a good song but I was pleased with the video as well. Uh, what was the longest shoot you did for a video? Oh, blimey, the longest shoot. Oh, that's tricky. I, I, I remember one shoot 
which I did for uh, a song for Lindsay Buckingham, I think it was called Slow Dancing, which was meant to be a one day shoot. I put all the money into the costumes and hiring the location and the special effects and the, the stuff like that. And so actually there wasn't a great deal of time to shoot these things. And that might have been not the longest shoot in terms of days, but it was the longest shoot in terms of hours. I think it, it went more than 24 hours, you know, non-stop shooting in order to get all the shots I wanted to get. And in the end, I think even he was pleased that I, I said, look, we've got to stop. And, and I still hadn't finished it and had to do a little pickup shoot another time. But, you know, those days of, of filming non-stop for, you know, 24 hours, 36 hours, whatever it is, are long gone. And, and, and good riddance actually because it's it's not even safe you know it's not a, it's not a good way to work but in those days one did you just kept shooting till you finished effectively worst professional experience of the ages well i think it was probably getting fired from by prince of sign of the times i was going to direct the movie sign of the times and, and i actually filmed all the live concert parts of it and i mean this is kind of quite how bizarre a bloke he was but i filmed half his movie, you know, feature film movie. I directed half it and I'd still not met it. <laughs> you know, this is how bonkers it, it was. Uh, so I'd shot all the, the material that was live. So in these massive concerts with thousands of people all going bonkers. And because I'd not met him or talked to him, he didn't want to talk to me. The way I was planning on doing it was uh, to film all the wide shots with the audience at the live concerts. So all, they were all wide shots effectively, because if you want a close-up, you know, or a big handheld close-up of someone playing on stage, you've got to have a cameraman on stage running about on stage. Then that cameraman is seen by all the other cameras and also by the audience. And it's just, it's not great. So my theory was link the band and his performance with the audience when we've got an audience. And then we were going to go to Paisley Park and pick up shooting all the close-ups. Uh, and apparently he saw all the rushes of the stuff I'd filmed and there were no close-ups, no big close-ups of, you know, hands playing the piano or, or strumming guitars or, or whatever. And he, he, he went bonkers and said, he's not shot any close-ups. So he fired me. <laughs> and that was... every, every video director would have done the same thing, wouldn't they? That had been the standard practice, wouldn't it? To like... Yeah, yeah, it was how you did it. It was certainly not revolutionary or whatever, but it was just, you know, he just wasn't a communicative chap. And, you know, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to, you know, have directed Prince's feature film. But uh, halfway through it, I got fired and that was that. So was that. Were you fired by one of his short little notes that he wrote you? Uh, effectively, I, I was. Well, I was actually fired by my... He sent a note to my uh, producer at the time and my producer told me and I packed my bag and uh, left Minneapolis. Uh, he, he had this funny thing, he wrote, you know, I'm sort of, obviously I've got a little bit of a grudge against him, but he used to, he, he wrote like a little girl, so he, he, if there was an I in the word that he was writing, he put a little circle on the top instead of a dot, sort of thing you think like a, an eight-year-old girl would do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rather peculiar. But, uh, I mean, he was a, a, an amazing musician, yeah. an amazing artist. I, I feel he was slightly sociopathic. But but apart from that, he was great, yeah. He was, a, he was a good bloke, yeah. The Eternal Jukebox. For eternity, which three videos of yours from the 80s would you keep? Oh, man, I tell you what, I wouldn't keep any of them. <laughs> For me, they're, they, they're like experiments. I suppose there were a couple... Which three of, are you most proud of? Three that I'm most proud of. 
Uh, let me think. I did like the one I did for X. There's a band called X. It was called Burning House of Love. I was kind of slightly riffing off David Hockney's photo montages. I shot it on probably about 12 Super 8 cameras and then collaged it all together. And that was really interesting. You know, it's a kind of unusual thing. And I quite like the song. It's a bit sort of post-punky, a bit more my taste. So I didn't mind that one. You know, perhaps... The, the Hooters one, 500 Miles, that I mentioned before, I, I was pleased with that one. And uh, I kind of like Sex as a Weapon, the Pat Benatar one. I mean, I think it, it, it hasn't stood the test of time, but at the time, it, you know, it felt really, really different to anything else that was being done at the time. So, you know, I was kind of pleased with that, perhaps. Lord, I'm 500 miles away from home. So that's three you give grudging respect to. I think you're way too hard on your 80s music videos. <laughs> really, seriously. Um, and three words to describe your 80s. Oh, three words. Three words. I had a laugh. That's four words. Had a laugh. Had a laugh. Yeah. I mean, I did have a laugh. It was it was great because yeah, I was able to do all these amazing things, work with these musicians and create film, experiment with film, travel, be creative. Yeah, it was good. It was good. That is the end of the interview. Uh, many thanks to Daniel for that interview. I really enjoyed that one. <laughs> the bring on the midget thing is just uh, sometimes when I'm washing up or walking down the street or washing up while walking down the street, I'll, I'll think about that. <laughs> it's just perfect. It's one of the, if you'd have had it in spot or tap, you just would have thought that's convenient there has to be a light called a midget no but oh that's probably my favorite anecdote i've had so far it's from actually he first mentioned i think i mentioned it in the interview it's in a book i want my mtv a book about the um, history of mtv it's a great book it's one of the books when you read you look to see how many pages are left because you're just enjoying it too much and you don't want it to end uh, that's by i've got a book here actually rob tannenbaum and craig mark so i highly recommend it. it's got a great last quote from um last quote in the book is from Trevor Horn, which is perfect. Yeah, so, uh, what else? Now I'm going to get out quick, so um, I want to get this under two hours. In fact, I'm going to end with a th- my favourite 30 second song. So it's not too long, maybe. Oh, go- quickly, a quick clue for the um, for the next guest. It's Anatomy of a Song episode. Here's a clue. Shit. You know. Okay, uh, I think we're done. Yeah, cue the music. Bring on the midget.
Even if you think that I don't. Even if you think if I don't. <laughs> even if you think that I don't. Even if you think if I don't. No, <laughs> even if you think that I don't. <laughs> I know it's time. One sentence. Even if you think that I don't. Even if you think if I don't. No. <laughs> even if you think that I don't. Even if she thinks that I don't. Perfect. Yeah, give me five. Ow. Thanks. Bless you. Cheers, bud. Oh.